0: This week, I'm trying something a little different. In addition to this essay and podcast, I've made a video. As part of my ongoing series, How It's Written, I'm explaining in detail why I think the TV show The Mandalorian is so well-crafted. And to do that, I delve into the world of internal story. I think this essay is more fun as a video, but it totally works as a podcast or if you read it, so please consume it in the form you find most palatable. So without any further introduction, here is... How It's Written, The Mandalorian. Today on How It's Written, we're going to dig into the immensely popular Mandalorian. I've seen lots of people commenting on this story, good and bad, but I don't think any of them are really nailed what makes this show so great. But that's not surprising because that's what a well-crafted story does. It hides its working so that you are drawn into and through the story without fully realizing what's being done to you. But I'm going to lay it all out for you. Obviously, if you haven't seen the whole show, this here's your spoiler alert. Go binge it. Come back. Done? Okay, good. The most important thing to realize is that for all its wonderful action sequences, The Mandalorian is driven by its internal story. And if you don't know what I mean by that, or that all great stories are driven by their internal conflict, Stick around. Internal versus external story. So quick primer. One way to think about the internal story is it's the story that matters most to the character who's going through it. I think this is what William Faulkner meant when he said, the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. Take Rocky, for example. On the outside, Rocky is a movie about a hopeless loser who gets a shot tries his best, and blows it. He loses. In fact, he gets beat up and loses in front of his girlfriend. But on the inside, it's a triumph. And we triumph with him, which is why we love Rocky. Now, could you tell a story of Rocky without the boxing scenes? On the one hand, the idea is kind of silly. The boxing is is the point. And it's how you show the conflict on the screen. It's how Rocky demonstrates his passion and his sacrifice. When you can write a book, you can put your reader directly into the mind of the character, but with film or television, you can't, so you have to have some way to symbolize what's going on in your character's head. But it can be anything that's fun to film. Boxing, wrestling, bobsledding, hunting a giant shark, chess game, performing a difficult piano concerto, lightsaber duels, or a gunfight. So here's how this show works. Every episode has the same structure. Mando gets a job, Mando does a job. He wants something from someone, and in exchange they give him a quest, and he completes it in an exciting and unexpected series of actions. And that's it. That's pretty much all there is to the external story. It's a formula, and I love it. And unless you're over-intellectualizing it, or trying to score clicks in some pointlessly snarky YouTube commentary, you love it too, because it's amazingly well done. You see, as fans and viewers, we don't want our expectations subverted. We don't want genre conventions broken. We want all of those things honored and given back to us in a way that makes them seem fresh and new. We want our expectations fulfilled in a way that we don't see coming, or with such a high emotional charge that we just don't care. And I think that's one reason The Mandalorian is so refreshing, It doesn't have any pretensions to being important to the culture. They're trying to tell an entertaining story. And that's it. And I think that's all George Lucas was trying to do when he made the original films. Make a piece of entertainment that would sell merchandise. And the other great thing about The Mandalorian is it's not a thriller. The whole world isn't at risk. The galaxy's not in jeopardy. The child is. And for me, at least, that makes the stakes more real. Is anything in the universe going to change if Baby Yoda gets snuffed? Probably not. But to The Mandalorian, it would be Armageddon. And that's the internal story. Or part of it, at least. So we've got 16 chapters across two seasons. And across the loom of these 16 episodes, the real story of The Mandalorian is woven. It's the story of a traumatized orphan raised to be a violent killing machine who rediscovers his humanity by caring for an orphan child. And his real difference, I think, is from cold indifference, that detachment of the professional, not just to love, but something beyond love. And I call it selfless love. I'm going to go through this in detail, but my first thought is that this is kind of a small story. It doesn't feel like two seasons worth of television. I mean, it's really a movie story, right? So I think any flaws in this show are because they were just chucking and jiving, filling episodes. Or what you might see as a flaw or misstep is the writer intentionally sacrificing the external story to make the internal story stronger. The most glaring example of this in my mind is in episode 14, titled The Tragedy, but what I like to think of as The Return of Boba Fett. In the standoff, Boba Fett demands that the Mandalorian take off his jetpack, which means that he doesn't have it on when the child is taken by the dark troopers flying away, you know, flying back up to the ship. And honestly, this is very, very dumb. I mean, why wouldn't he put his jetpack back on as soon as the conflict was over? Because if he had it, he'd just fly up and rescue the child. Or get killed in the process. End of story either way. But it's very important for the internal story to have the child taken from him. Because it is in recapturing the child, that big fight that is to come, is how he will show that he truly loves the child. This misstep sets up a bigger, more satisfying story beat in the end. Find me anything you love and I will show you a mistake. This show isn't perfect, but nothing is. Work doesn't succeed because it's flawless, it succeeds because its strengths overcome its flaws. And that's worth knowing if you want to be a maker instead of a critic. This is why hatchet job reviews and commentary bother me. Everything has its flaws. And it takes no real skill or insight to spot them. What's harder to explain is why anything is actually good. In other words, how the strengths of a thing overcome its flaws. In the first episode, there are only two beats in the internal story. Mithril tries to bribe him not to take him in, and the Mandalorian doesn't accept. Because, even though he's not exactly a good guy, He's a man with a code, which the show will beat us over the head with for a couple of episodes. This is the way. 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 way. Yes, he's got a way, because this is a Western and a Samurai movie. And Westerns and Samurai movies are the same thing. Because even if you swap out the pistols for swords, a showdown is a showdown is a showdown. Yojimbo is the movie The Fistful of Dollars. The Seven Samurai is The Magnificent Seven. And Kurosawa, the guy who made these samurai epics, was in turn influenced by earlier Westerns. These cycles of influence never end. So in 1970, Katsuo Koike and Goseki Kojima produced a Japanese comic called *Kazure Okami, which literally translates as Wolf Taking Along His Child, which you might know as Lone Wolf and Cub. It's a monster manga epic. This is the first volume, and there are 12 of these books in the series. As you can see from the fabulous cover art by Frank Miller, we've got the cute kid in the baby carriage and everything. So it seems like it's the same as The Mandalorian, but it's not. Because of, you guessed it, the internal story. Now, I love Lone Wolf and Cub, so don't take this as a real criticism. But compared to The Mandalorian, the wolf Ogami Ito is kind of an asshole, or at least a real hard ass. At the beginning of the story, he has been ordered to commit suicide by the emperor. His wife is dead, and his clan has been betrayed. He's setting off on a path of revenge, but the problem is he's got this young son. So he lays out a sword and a ball, and he lets the kid choose. If the kid chooses the ball, he's going to send him off to be with his mother. In other words, he's going to kill him but the kid chooses the sword. So Ogami Ito takes him along in one of the most satisfying stories of reckless child endangerment I've ever read. But that's not the Mandalorian story. And we don't quite know it yet. The only hint we get in this episode is when he tells the Armorer I was a foundling. So when he teams up with IG-11, The commission was quite specific. The asset was to be terminated. Mandalorian shoots him in the head. Why? Why would a ruthless professional, one whose code includes the phrase, I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold, not let the droid kill the kid? Well, at this point, it could be he just wants the money for himself. Now, you and I have both seen the show, so we know that's not it. It's that he sees himself in the kid. He was rescued by a Mandalorian in a gunfight. And we'll get all of this in the third episode. The second episode is fun, but from the internal story perspective, only one thing happens. The kid saves him from the Mudhorn. Now it's super geeky awesome that Baby Yoda used the Force. But for the internal story, it doesn't really matter how the kid saves him. Just like it doesn't matter that Rocky is a boxer. Not really. In the third episode, he delivers the child to the client, and he takes his best guard of the armorer to make a new set of armor. And while it's getting made, we get this flashback sequence that shows him as an orphan. It was a flashback sequence that, for me, broke the flow of the episode a little. It was exposition. I didn't think we needed it the first time I watched it. I realized we now did need it. We needed it for the internal story. Because he's about to blow up his entire life. So when he goes to the ship, we have this... Great moment with the little metal ball. I think the technical term for this is recognition by token. The ball is a symbol for the kid. And this is very skillful because in film, we can't just crack open his head and know what's going on. But if he stares at the metal ball the kid played with, what else could he possibly be thinking about? We get emotion out of an absolutely faceless mask. And in fact, that's another interesting thing about the show that we as viewers project our emotions onto the mask in a way that we wouldn't if we had an actor's face to rely on to give us cues. Anyway, this is a lovely internal moment, and quietly I think it's one of the biggest moments in the entire series. Does he leave the kid, or does he rescue him? There are two things to note about this. Number one, a crisis is always a choice. And number two, great crises are never a choice between good and bad things they are almost always a choice between irreconcilable things. Think Sophie's choice. In this moment, the Mandalorian realizes that he's not who he thought he was. He's not just a Mandalorian. Inside, he's still also that scared five-year-old kid. Except this time, he's big, and he's strong, and he knows how to fight. So what's he gonna do? Which one of these identities is he going to kill? because a ruthless, cold-blooded bounty hunter doesn't break the deal. What are your plans for it? How uncharacteristic of one of your reputation. You have taken both commission and payment. Is it not the code of the guild that these events are now forgotten? But if he doesn't break this deal, that little five-year-old boy inside him is going to die. So he goes back and rescues the child and goes on the run. This is also gigantic on an external level, because he blew up his entire external life. Now he can't be a bounty hunter anymore, he's on the run with a kid, and he's estranged from all the other Mandalorian. In the next episode, we have the wonderful defense in-depth scene against the bandits with the ATST, which is a great introduction to a great character, Cara Dune, who is a female badass who looks like she's a female badass. Bravo, proper casting. I don't want to get too deep into the details of the external story, but I will also point out that tactically this may be the best battle scene in all of Star Wars. This episode is also The Magnificent Seven in a nutshell. Call it The Magnificent Duo. And what's important about this episode is that he won't take off his helmet. He's going to leave the child because it's best for the child. But bounty hunters come and they have to stay on the run. But the very moment before that attack, Kara Dune lays this on him. So what happens if you take that thing off? They come after you and kill you? No, you just can't ever put it back on again. That's it? So you can slip off the helmet and settle down with that beautiful young widow and raise your kid sitting here sipping Spachka? And he refuses. Now the next chapter is just fun action in the desert. I love the motorcycle shot, but it's a bit of a nothing burger for the story that's driving this whole thing. The stakes aren't raised on the key value here. He does what he's done before. He saves the kid from a bounty hunter. In chapter six, the prisoner, the Mandalorian has taken a job with old associates. And this is a bit of a reversal from love to indifference. He's risking the child's life Ogami Ito style. Now, you could see this as he doesn't have a choice, but I don't know. It all seems a bit sloppy and risky for a professional. But in the end, he saves the kid, and the status quo is maintained, and we're off to Chapter 7. To keep the kid safe, the Mandalorian pulls together all of his allies in a plot to kill the client, which is bittersweet for me because I love Werner Herzog's performance. He is so marvelously nihilistic. As at home in the real politic of the crumbling empire, as a crow feasting upon a battlefield. Don't you agree? Over the next two episodes, the Mandalorian kills the client and Moff Gideon, but that's kind of what he's done before with the other bounty hunters. And it also can be read as just getting himself out of a mess. But taking on the obligation to find the child's people and see that he is taken care of. Now that's a step up. At the end of Episode 7, we have this great speech by Moff Gideon. You have something I want. You may think you have some idea what you are in possession of, but you do not. Quill, are you back to the ship yet? They're on to us. Quill, come in. In a few moments, it will be mine. Quill, do you copy? Quill It means more to me than you will ever know. At the open of Episode 8, we have the Scout Trooper scene. Written by Taika Waititi, because of course this is written by Taika Waititi. This scene is amazing. We get utter humanity from two Stormtroopers. Funny, sympathetic... It feels like the most real scene in the whole show for me, kind of. But you can't like these guys too much because they're about to get absolutely murdered by IG-11. So what does Taika have them do? Punch Baby Yoda. Now, even though you totally sympathized with them, it's perfectly okay with you that they get killed. That's so well done, this is instantly one of my favorite scenes of all time. I also have to point out that IG-11 steals the entire first season for me. It's his episode, It's called redemption, because the droid redeems himself. Wheel has been terminated. What did you do? I am fulfilling my base function. Which is? To nurse and protect. But from an internal story standpoint, IG-11's sacrifice prefigures the sacrifices that the Mandalorian will make for the child. Because I think you have to see a person who never takes off his helmet as someone who's trying to be a machine. And IG-11 as a machine that is trying to be human. This is all bullshit, of course, from the text of the story, with IG-11 insisting repeatedly that he's never been alive. But I think my explanation is what most people get when watching it, if only as a feeling. Again, we get the Mandalorian refusing to take off his helmet. He'd rather die than show his face to another living thing. And the scared little boy inside him just assumes that when he's powerless before the droid, that IG-11 is just going to kill him. My guess is there's not a lot of room for weakness in the code of the Mandalorian. Do it. Do what? Just get it over with. I'd rather you kill me than some imp. I told you, I am no longer a hunter. I am a nurse droid. High are all hunters. Not this one. I was reprogrammed. I need to remove your helmet if I am to save you. Try it and I'll kill you. It is forbidden. No living thing has seen me without my helmet since I... I am not a living thing. But IG-11 is not alive. So we have a loophole. Now, if you're not a writer, you probably don't think that much about story at all. You just enjoy it. Which means that when a story is well-constructed, you don't notice any of the plot points. Your emotions are running high, and you just want to know what happens next. Both on an intellectual and emotional level, You are drawn into the story. But if a story isn't put together well, then you notice all the errors and the gaps in the story. This is why, I think, if you want to understand what makes great stories, then you have to outline them. Because on first inspection, they've cast their spell over you, and you can't see them clearly. Since the Mandalorian won't take off his mask in the beginning, it means that he has to take off his mask in the climax of the story. Now, if you say this out loud while watching season one for the first time with your friends, you're a jerk. But if you're John Favreau trying to write a television show, that's what you call a clue. Very often, stories are worked best back to front. What's your great ending? Now, how do you set up that great ending? Twists are easy-er, great scenes are easy-er, but great endings are really rare. So one school of thought is that you don't start writing until you have your ending. Because just assuming a great ending will be waiting for you when you get there can really get you into trouble, as I think we've seen with other Star Wars stories. And of course... (laughs) Anyway, IG-11 makes The Mandalorian promise to take care of the child. And we get real emotion out of The Mandalorian from this. Then we get a stupid, ridiculous action sequence. This is something that you would do while playing with Star Wars action figures, and part of me loves it, and the other part of me just doesn't care. Because as we've seen from following the internal story, it doesn't matter. It's a boxing match. A symbol of the internal struggle and triumph. And then season two. From what I read as the internal story of The Mandalorian, nothing happens for like seven chapters. Oh, plenty happens in the way of action. And I like all of these episodes. I even like chapter 10 with the crazy ice spiders and its deus ex machina ending, because I'm bought into the internal story by this point. And for that story, the jeopardy that drives that episode is, is Baby Yoda going to get caught eating the frog lady's children? I think Blake Snyder of Save the Cat would call these episodes fun and games. It's the promise of the premise. The Mandalorian is doing cool Mandalorian things. He's taking care of the kid, But it's not like the stakes of his sacrifice uh, are rising. Then Moff Gideon captures the kid. And he kills a main character. Blows up the man's ride. But it's more than blowing up the man's ride. That ship is a character in the show in the same way the Millennium Falcon is. Once it's gone, things can't really be the same. This is probably an intentional signal, but maybe not but clearly the story formula is broken. Losing the ship is a powerful sign that we are not going back to the way things were. The Mandalorian calls in all his allies and they put together a plan to get the kid. They have the kid. But along the way, we have another climax to the internal story. He needs the location of Moff Gideon, but to get it, he has to break his code and take off the helmet. The crisis is this. Does he do it? Or does he not do it? And when he does, you have to ask yourself, is this it? Is this the big scene where the Mandalorian removes his helmet? Well, not exactly. But I think it actually heightens the big scene. Because what we see is that he doesn't exactly know how to be a person without the helmet. He's damaged. And to protect his weak point, he has donned armor. And what he's armored himself against is trauma all of that terrible shit that happened to him. Not only his parents being killed, but also the terrible things that happened making him into a Mandalorian. To the Mandalorian, foundling might be another term for child soldier. They sure don't express a lot of affection in the show. And the time-honored way to make superhuman warriors, from Spartans to seals, is to put them through trials that only a very few can survive. This guy is broken and hurt And we see it in his eyes in chapter 15. We also get the great scene where Bill Burr just blows the whole operation because he has to shoot his ex commander. See, boys, everybody thinks they want freedom. But what they really want is order. And when they realize that, they're going to welcome us back with open arms. the Empire for me this is the most political moment in the entire show but it doesn't feel forced and it's totally consistent with the character and what is the arc of most of the secondary characters in the show every single one of them redeems themselves just as the Mandalorian redeems himself at the end Look at the transformations. Grief Cargo goes from running bounty hunters to becoming a governor. Kara Dune goes from wanted fugitive to marshal. Bill Burr redeems himself when he kills his commander and blows up the base. For all the violence, this is a show about redemption. At the end of episode 15, he puts Moff Gideon on notice with a lovely bit of parallelism. Moff Gideon. You have something I want. You may think you have some idea what you are in possession of, but you do not. Soon, he will be back with me. He means more to me than you will ever know." Now this is not strategically sound, but it's so cool, who cares? I didn't come here for a lesson in tactics, I'm here to be entertained. So, fight, 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 rescue the kid, trapped on the bridge, robots hammering at the door, all is lost. But then, a lone X-Wing flies in. One X-Wing? Great. We're saved. Now, I don't want to underestimate the feels that come with Luke Skywalker making an appearance. It got me. And it really got me because the prequels and the sequels were so bad. My goal with these essays is not to be critical. And there are things to be learned from those stories, for sure but they were bad, and especially with the sequels. Maybe the expectations, the corporate meddling, all of what made it possible, made it impossible to make it good. Honestly, I thought the first one did an amazing job of threading an impossible set of challenges. But after that, ugh, and those prequels, Mises say, Ooh. Now you may feel differently, and that's fine. I don't blame or judge you what you have to understand about me is that my dad took me to see Star Wars in 1977. I was five. We saw it in the theater at least three times. I loved that movie so much that whenever a movie would come on television with the 20th Century Fox intro, with the drum roll and the fanfare, I would stop whatever I was doing on the off chance, on the hope, that it might just be Star Wars. It almost never was. Empire Strikes Back blew my mind. Return of the Jedi wasn't as good as that, but it was close. Luke saving and forgiving his father is still very powerful, and maybe more powerful now that I'm a father and I come to understand a little bit about what having a son means. And it's saying a hell of a lot that a piece of pop culture still works on any level 38 years later. or 44 years later, if you count it from the first film. Here's the thing. That five-year-old boy is still inside me. Honestly, I didn't have a very happy childhood. And I haven't always had that great of a relationship with my dad. We can both be very difficult people. And it was his first time being a dad, my first time being a kid, so neither of us knew what the hell we were doing. But I remember the moments surrounding those films as being very happy. And since Return of the Jedi, that five-year-old kid has waited for that Star Wars to show up again. To this day, my ears still prick up when I hear the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Because maybe, just maybe, it's going to be that Star Wars movie I always wanted, but never got, but it never has. Now the lesson a writer could learn from this is that the expectations you set with a book or a film or a genre are critically important, and if you don't handle them correctly, you're going to be in for rough sledding. But the five-year-old me doesn't care about any of that. He's been waiting for Luke Skywalker to show up on screen since 1983. Not this guy, this guy. So yeah, that was an emotional moment for me. And I don't care about the quality of the CGI, it didn't matter anyway because tears welled up in my eyes and it was blurry. I tell you all of that so you can put what I will say next into proper perspective. That moment was genius. But it's not storytelling genius. It's a manipulative, sentimental genius. And if an emotional moment like that is wrong, I don't want to be right. For reasons beyond my conscious control, I'm all in. But it's still deus ex machina, the god from the machine. This term was coined by Aristotle, who used it to point out that it's generally bad writing. So this kind of thing has been recognized as a mistake since 300 BC. But in this case, it's clearly a mistake you want to make. So here's how it worked in ancient Greece. At the end of the play, they would literally use a crane to drop a totally new actor in, who was playing a god, onto the stage, and that character would magically resolve everything. But now, 23 centuries later, instead of a crane, we get an X-wing dropping the god into the story. But it doesn't matter, because all this only resolves the external story, and the internal story is what matters. So let's break it down. As the dark troopers are banging on the door, Moff Gideon gets a hold of a blaster. And when he shoots the child, the Mandalorian throws his body in front of the shot to save Baby Yoda. For me, this is kind of a superfluous beat. I mean, it's just his life. Mando has risked his life a whole bunch for the kid. But at the very end, after Luke has cleaned house, the Mandalorian risks far, far more. In the end, he risks his identity. He grows and changes to save the child. And he loves the kid so much that his ego, that wounded thing inside him that fights to hold on to his code, that won't let him take off his helmet, that holds on to all that pain and that trauma because the ego needs it. The ego believes that without it, he won't exist. It's that same thing in all of us that clings tightly to who we believe we are or should be, that gets in the way of us becoming someone better. That won't let us go even when the things about us that need to change threaten to destroy us and everyone else around us. The Mandalorian loves the kid so much, so unselfishly, that he lets him go. And he doesn't do it to be the hero. He doesn't do it to save the kid's life or his own. He does it because the child needs it from him. And he loves the child so much, he has to give it to him loves him enough to let him go even though it had to hurt like hell, even though he's probably not gonna know who he is for a while, because his ego has been dissolved in an act of selfless love. That is a story, that is a character arc, and that is an ending. So while I could quibble over beats or choices or minor things, when you see the whole arc of what's really going on, I don't know why you would waste your time complaining. It's like complaining about a rainbow because you think it should be six inches to the left. It's a f***ing rainbow, jackass. If you're not gonna enjoy it, you're not going to enjoy anything. If you like this episode, you should subscribe. And if you like the way I talk about story, you should probably check out my latest series, How to Succeed in Evil. There's a link in the description that will get you a free copy of the first book. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time.